Hello again, and welcome back to the I Hear Design podcast from INS Magazine, your source for interior design and architecture news, interviews, and opinions. I'm your host, Robert Yaminen, and this is the third and final installment in our three-part series on sustainable design that we've been in for the past month. If you missed parts one and two, I encourage you to go back and listen to those conversations as we explored the big picture topic of the new climate reality we're facing and what we as an industry can do about it in terms of creating healthier and more sustainable building projects with a focus on decarbonization and net zero targets. We also talked about the myriad of eco-labels and third-party certification programs and rating systems on the market that can cause so much confusion for design professionals and how they can demystify the process a little bit. Today, we're narrowing our focus down even more to focus specifically on the higher education market and the ways that colleges and universities have doubled down on their sustainability commitments, as well as some of the challenges and solutions they've faced in the journey to net zero. Joining me in today's discussion are Martha Larson, Director of Sustainability for RMF Engineering, Jennifer Cordes, Principal at Hord Copeland Macht, and Dara Jacob, Associate Principal, Sustainable Design at MHTN. I learned a lot from these designers who are clearly passionate about the work they're doing to transform the higher education market into one that's on the leading edge of sustainability, and I think you'll find their insights truly valuable. Let's dive in. Well, hi, Jennifer, Dara, and Martha. Welcome to the I Hear Design podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. It's great to, to have you here. Thank you for being uh, on this episode to conclude our three-part series on sustainability. Uh, I'm really excited to dive into our conversation uh, around how the higher education market has been embracing sustainable design uh, to help combat climate change. Uh, But before we get into all of that, uh, would you all mind introducing yourselves to our listeners and tell us what you do at your respective firms? Uh, So, Jennifer, why don't you go first? Sure. Great. Thanks, Robert. Uh, I am Jennifer Cordes. I am the higher education market sector leader for Hord Copeland Macht Architects. So I've been with Hord Copeland Macht for 27 years. I lead our higher education practice and I have a specialty in science and technology spaces, so laboratories specifically. Uh, surprisingly, right now, I am also the interim sustainability director for the firm because we are currently in between sustainability directors. So I'm kind of heading up sustainability efforts for the company as well. Great. Okay. Martha, what about you? Yes, uh, I have been in the design and construction industry for over 20 years, starting on the design side as an acoustical consultant and then moving to owner's project management for seven years before spending the last 12 years at Carleton College inside the facilities department as both a project manager and the manager of energy and sustainability. Uh, Through a large campus decarbonization project at Carleton, which we completed in 2021, I then moved to RMF Engineering, where I am now as the Director of Sustainability, mostly to continue doing that type of work at campuses across the country. All right, perfect. Last but not least, uh, Dara, tell us a little bit about yourself. I'm Dara Jacob. I'm the Director of Sustainable Design at MHTN Architects in Salt Lake City, Utah. We are a firm of about 100 people, and we offer architectural services, interior design services, landscape, um, urban planning. So we're kind of a one-stop shop. We specialize in pre-design and um, we, I, I basically help the sustainability group at the firm. 
kind of advise and consult with multiple project teams. Um, so I work with primarily higher ed projects, but also work on K through 12, commercial, municipal, you name it. So kind of see see things from all sides, but primarily higher ed. All right. Perfect. Well, to kick things off for our conversation here, I wanted to ask a sort of a high level question first about where the education market stands in the sustainability conversation before we get into some of the finer points of the discussion. But historically speaking, um, where have colleges and universities landed uh, on the spectrum of the sustainability movement? Um, like, would you say they've been on the leading edge or have they been lagging behind other sectors or somewhere in between? Jennifer, I'll start with you on this question. So great. Uh, so I've had an opportunity to work with a lot of campuses uh, across the U.S. And I would argue that higher education is on the leading edge, mainly because they haven't wavered in their goal to battle climate change. So, you know, I think we all know a lot of higher ed institutions are often restricted in funding, but generally they continue to push themselves to make sustainable solutions happen on their campuses and within their sector of the market. I think probably the best example is the president's climate commitment. So in December 2006, 12 colleges and universities got together and they established the American College and University President's Climate Commitment. And they committed to each other that they would work to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions and accelerate the research and as educational efforts to restabilize the Earth's climate. And now there are 800 colleges and universities that are all signed on to this commitment in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. And, you know, together they all represent over 5 million signatories. So, you know, as a, as a sector, they really believe in this. And that president's climate commitment has now evolved into what's called the UC3. It's a university climate change coalition where 23 leading research institutions are now sharing information back and forth. They're kind of, you know, group sourcing their research to try and expedite climate change opportunities. So I think they really are pushing, pushing a lot. Yeah, absolutely. Martha and Dara, do you, are you seeing the same uh, type of, of push from, from colleges and universities on your end? Absolutely. I'm, I'm actually at the Climate Leadership Conference for Second Nature today, <laughs> calling in from... Um, <laughs> wow the annual gathering of that group. And, you know, as Jennifer mentioned, it's so consistent for the last, you know, 15 plus years since that commitment came out. Schools have continued to make progress and, and have been very transparent when they haven't been making progress about what the barriers are. And mm -hmm. I think that unity across the sector has helped them learn from each other and, and sort of muscle through those barriers collectively. Yeah. Uh, one of the questions I, I just came to mind um, wasn't in my notes here, but um, are you seeing a similar push on, you know, from public schools uh, versus private schools? Uh, is there any data to, to suggest that it's happening more on one side than the other, or is it kind of uh, sort of an equal type of effort? So I'll jump in here, Robert, if it's okay. Yeah, absolutely. I'm seeing more, th this is Jennifer, I'm seeing more on the public sector. A lot of that is because public funding is mm -hmm. requiring them to to hit certain high performing uh, criteria uh, in my state of Colorado, if right. you get more than 25% public funding, you have to meet the state's high performance certification program. And you know the easiest way to do that would be to meet a lead silver mm -hmm. certification criteria. So 
I'm seeing it more in the public sector, but um, I'm wondering if um, Dara and Martha are seeing it differently. I'd agree with you, Jennifer. Um, we have some experience with some private institutions, but it's primarily through public institutions. And I'd say it's that public funding mechanism that really helps kind of push things along. Um, and anytime there's yeah state money involved, it really does incentivize a lot of energy in this realm. I think having yeah. come from a private institution, um, it's it's a little bit of a different take, but a lot of the really ambitious, uh, expansive decarbonization efforts have actually accelerated in the smaller liberal arts schools. And I think part of that is because they aren't necessarily beholden to a lot of those um, requirements and they're a little more nimble. They also just aren't as big. So they're able to tackle a campus-wide mm. move away from fossil fuels um, that can be completed in, you know, five to seven years holistically. And I think it's a ch much bigger challenge at a large uh, publicly funded institution to kind of get to the finish line, as it were. Yeah, definitely. Great points on, on all sides there. That, that's really good. Dara, I wanted to pitch this next question to you. Um, how significant is the environmental footprint that colleges and universities represent um, as a market? Like, how critical is it that these institutions um, begin to curb their energy usage and reduce their carbon emissions? That's a great question, Robert. I, you know, it, as you think about these college campuses, and it's interesting to think about, you know, kind of these smaller institutions versus, you know, larger public institutions. And, you know, regardless, they're, they're kind of like small cities in and of themselves. So, you know, and especially as you start to think about the types of buildings that uh, make up these campuses, you know, labs, um, you know, really highly energy intensive buildings, it is super critical that these institutions really kind of take on this charge that they have and, and begin to reduce their energy use because you know, they, they do have significant draws on energy. Um, they do have aggressive goals and targets that they are reaching and striving for. And that's, um, you know, amazing and awesome. But, you know, they still require a lot of energy and they utilize a lot of energy. So it's um, super, super critical that they um, sort of understand, you know, how they're actually going to meet their goals. And, you know, speaking to that idea of transparency and um, really being open and honest about, you know, how they're meeting their goals and, and where they're falling short is, is I think, kind of part of that conversation. Um, you know, campuses are just basically kind of ever-evolving ecosystems. They're these amalgamations of old buildings, new buildings, some more intense, energy intensive than others. So it's, it's kind of a lot to kind of get your arms around. Um, but they're, they really are um, kind of taking it on and it's kind of like the perfect sort of testing ground in a way because they are the, these kind of um, discrete little cities that can kind of make those big moves and test things and, and have that agility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Martha and Jennifer, anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I might just add to what Dara said by... Um just commenting that the business model for higher education is set up for this. They are in it for the long haul. The investments that they make in buildings and their, their um, environment is, you know, 100 plus year investments. And so 
decisions that require long-term evaluation over life cycle costing and life cycle carbon over decades can make sense at institutions. And as uh, Jennifer mentioned, the president's climate commitment was also very clear about the responsibility to lead. Institutions are, are responsible for progressing you know, knowledge, for moving societal change, um, and they're also held accountable for that. It's, very, it's a very visible platform. And so that commitment really focused on the obligation of institutions to lead by example. And I think that is very, uh, in, very much in alignment with progress on fighting climate change. Yeah, absolutely. And that, and that sort of leads into my next question that I, that I had, Martha, so if you want to uh, tackle this, um, you know, about some of the drivers behind, um, you know, why these educational institutions are tackling more rigorous sustainability targets. Um, it, it sounded like you mentioned uh, earlier, public funding is certainly one driver. And then um, obviously some of the investments that they're making. Are there others that are, that are driving this change toward uh, decarbonization uh, that you can see? Definitely. It's multifaceted. You know, there are many ways that it comes about. Oftentimes, there's a top-down uh, declaration from leadership, and it's part of a strategic plan for the campus. Um, it's part of that particular leader's legacy. You know, if they choose that to be kind of their um, legacy at the institution. And also, it's bottom-up. It's activism. It's, uh, you know, students and faculty saying, this situation is urgent. We have to take action now. We as a community are responsible for demonstrating that we can uh, walk the talk, basically, behind uh, taking action to support all of the you know, generation of knowledge and, and uh, thinking that we do about this subject. We also have to take action. So it's coming from multiple angles, but, it, but we see it um, really coming top down and ground up. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, definitely, you know, we're seeing even in other markets, the younger generation is really concerned about um, sustainability and the environment. So it would make sense in the, in the educational, uh, higher education market as well. Dara or Jennifer, anything you want to add to that? And the only thing I wanted to add is I did read a stat that 60 percent of our college and university students right now agree that climate change is an urgent problem. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that that's fascinating to think about, because 20 years ago, that probably was not the case. So I do think our, right. our higher education institutions are, are listening to their clients. Absolutely. No, no, I think you're totally right. Can, can you all provide some case studies or examples of what colleges and universities are doing today to help lead their industry into a more sustainable future? Um, and Jennifer, I'll, I'll, I'll jump back to you on that. Sure. I've got, I've got two examples. One is, um, you know, as I think about carbon, I always have to remind myself there's operating carbon, which is really the energy, but there's also embodied carbon. It's all mm -hmm. the stuff these little cities buy. Right. So, uh, you know, Loyola in, in Maryland just got a grant to work through a zero waste program for their campus. And, you know, it makes me think that, you know, Martha might be right. Some of these smaller institutions maybe can move the dial more because they are going to try and go to a, a zero waste opportunity for their campus. And when it's a smaller campus, that's, I, I think, a it's, it's an achievable goal. Uh, so I think that's one great example. The other one is Smith College is working with several institutions, including Johns Hopkins, on this concept of carbon pricing and how that could translate into different decision making for our campuses. All of our higher ed institutions are, you know, are battling funding. And we all know that the cost of higher education is going up. So they have to be really, really responsible with their dollars. So understanding how carbon 
affects uh, the decision-making when they're coming to building or renovating projects, I think is a really important piece of the puzzle. It, this is in, in its infancy, but, they, but they're really, really driving a better balance between first cost and long co- long-term cost. And I think that's really uh, impressive, and I'm excited to see where that where that report comes when that report comes out, how that affects everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, I'd love to hear about more case studies and examples. Um, Martha or Dara, do you have any you want to share? Sure. Um, I've actually got two examples as well, kind of two sides of the same coin. Um, one project that we worked on was Utah State University um, new academic building in Moab, Utah. Um, it's a tiny, small, little campus. It's actually the first building on a new campus. So it's kind of uh, a really unique situation. It's sort of never happens where you're just building a, a campus from the ground up. And um, so this kind of unique uh, project was actually really interesting and helped kind of the, the university was able to kind of set the tone for this this campus. So they had these really kind of lofty sustainability goals from the very beginning. And that was super important in, in kind of the success of this project. It ended, we actually ended up exceeding our goal of net zero energy and became a net zero positive building. Um, and it's USU's first. Um, so that was really kind of a, a big, um, move in this for this university. And, um, it, it's, what's great is that it, it did set the tone for future development. So, um, that's kind of, and it's such a, a kind of community-centered sort of uh, building, and so it really kind of um, just lit up the whole sort of community around, and kind of the whole community rallied around the the, the goals of this building. So it was really kind of a, a an amazing project to work on, um, and then we kind of the flip side of that, in a way, was. We worked on um, a project, the University of Utah, which is, you know, very established campus, um, has a central plant. And we worked on a, a large classroom building there that essentially sort of broke away from the campus plant dependency. And the whole charge of this building was to find alternative energy sources on campus. So it was kind of this experiment. And how can how can new development on campus be more sustainable? Um, how can it be, you know, um, how can the car- carbon footprint be reduced uh, knowing that this kind of system that's this infrastructure in place is really, um, you know, wanting to move away from that. So um, used uh, ground source heating and cooling and um, really was successful in its sort of energy goals. Um, but it was an interesting kind of take to kind of um, uh, you know, go into an existing campus and really sort of break away and start um, kind of a, a new development uh, paradigm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Uh, Martha, did you want to highlight any any uh, projects, recent projects that kind of demonstrate the commitment of, of higher ed to you know, sustainability targets? You know, those were such great examples. Uh, I think I'll kind of expand on that by talking about um, the fact that there's a lot colleges do that are now especially now that's going beyond counting carbon. It did used to be quite focused on carbon footprint, how to get that down, really focused on really facilities, solutions to those issues. What we see colleges doing is um, really taking the lead in integrating uh, issues of justice, equity, inclusion, 
and tying that inextricably to climate change and the, the maybe the more scientific problems and solutions associated with climate change. And then, of course, integrating that into their commitments to community engagement. So having actual projects in the field that work on that. One example is at Carleton College. They were doing food recovery network where they would uh, have folks once a week go out and just take all the expired food on pallets, huge amounts of food from the local grocery stores, quick trip, you know, gas stations, whatever, and deliver that to the food shelf. And they developed a um, proposal, a grant proposal, which was accepted by the Pollution Control Agency to count the carbon, um, sell carbon offsets for the carbon that is avoided in the landfill by, you know, essentially rescuing all that food, meanwhile tying it to the mission of reducing poverty and increasing equity in the community. So I think that type of systems thinking is where colleges excel, and I, I'm very excited to see now this uh, movement beyond just the mathematics of carbon counting into a mm -hmm. more holistic uh, solutions-based mindset. Yeah, absolutely. And it's and it's beyond just having, um, you know, a building with a LEED certification. I mean, as, as important as that is, right? I mean, it's, uh, as you mentioned, engaging the community and just this much larger uh, sort of systems thinking uh, that you brought up, which is which is great. Um, but I imagine uh, leading to my next question, you know, there are challenges that architects, designers, administrators um, face when when they're designing either a new educational facility or perhaps even remodeling existing ones. Uh, to be healthier and more efficient. Um, Martha, I was hoping you could talk about that a little bit. Like, what are some of these challenges and what are some of the solutions that you've seen to overcome those? Sure. I, I know one of the first things that always comes to mind is competing priorities, uh, priorities that are competing for resources, the same pot of money or the same board uh, engagement and approvals. And I think this, the solutions that we're seeing emerging are integrating those uh, goals together. So deferred maintenance, existing buildings is a big um, challenge for universities, and when they can integrate the ability to upgrade their infrastructure systems to be uh, migrate off fossil fuels, for instance, that can be coupled with the need to renew their infrastructure systems that are now aging and uh, some becoming obsolete. So I think tying missions, tying various goals together is one way they're um, working at that. And then the other challenge, uh, in addition to working in existing buildings, is Anticipating future needs, I see often this conversation about, you know, how much should we invest in upgrading the heating system so we can move off fossil fuels versus or in addition to adding air conditioning because our dorms are now uh, unsustainably hot in months when it used to not be, um, you know, not be so hot. So we're trying to, these trade-offs are not only happening in real time, but we're also trying to project how those trade-offs are going to play out into the future, given a changing climate. I have a great example of this, Robert, if you're okay with me chiming yeah, in here. Of course, of course, yeah. So the University of Colorado Boulder campus has decided that they're going to electrify their entire campus. And so every project has to build the infrastructure for this electrification decision. So to Martha's point, they're, they're tying together a deferred maintenance project with this long-term goal of electrifying the campus. So uh, it is it, it is a great way to, to kind of think through long-term their long-term goal to get off fossil fuels. Mm -hmm. And then along with that, they're building photovoltaic PV sites off-site, off-campus. So it, it really is, I think Martha's into, onto something here. We really need to think about it and 
higher education institutions are really getting pretty smart because they do hold these buildings for a hundred years. They they can think about it in a in a more progressive way. Absolutely. Um, what are some of the other considerations that design practitioners should keep in mind when they're you know looking at building, designing sustainable educational facilities and campuses? Um, Dara, I'll pitch that one to you. Um, that's that's a good question. You know, I I I keep coming back to that that communication that needs to really happen between your stakeholder groups, the you know the university, the consultants, the designers that integrated design um, sort of uh, framework is super, super critical. And so um, really kind of considering expanding those traditional consultant groups to to more, con- you know, enhanced consultant type um, kind of bringing those voices into the conversation and bringing them into a conversation that includes everyone sort of um up front at the beginning of project is super critical. So like enhanced uh, energy modeling, um, even we, we had um, uh, soils consultants in uh, the USU Moab, Moab project. We had biodiversity consultants. So we, it's just kind of it, bringing that kind of holistic uh, perspective into a project can be something that designers might consider in, in really kind of um, uh, elevating those projects um, and really identifying those champions in the stakeholder groups. Um, you know, it, it's super critical for universities to put those people that have those that vision in positions to make decisions on projects. If, if those people aren't there, they, it, it, you know, those projects, those things that, you know, the, the university holds um so dear in terms of, of sustainability can really um, fall by the wayside if those those people aren't in the positions to make those decisions. Um, so really putting those people up front um, in those key positions is is super critical. Um, and then really um, kind of centering those discussions about, uh, uh, you know, those holistic decisions about, uh, you know, weighing life cycle costs, upfront costs, doing those latitude studies, getting those um, sort of uh, brought up and, and into the conversation early on can be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Martha or, or Jennifer, any other design considerations that should be top of mind? Yeah, you know, I, it might take it in a little bit of a different direction, but um as designers and uh, you know folks in the building industry, our our whole job is to protect people from nature, insulate them from the elements, and it's more important than ever right now for people to connect with nature and value nature in order to really uh, embrace some of the more technical aspects of our designs and our goals. Um, so I, and I think we we can do that in different ways. You know, we can bring light into the building, we can have views, we can bring in natural materials, but it has to be ways that are very meaningful and spiritual, and use beauty and use proportion and um, really bring that nature, you know, make make it more of a, a fluid um, relationship between the outside and the inside, so that we really rediscover our dependence on nature and our exposure to nature and our our love of nature, even when we're inside our built environment. 
Yeah, that's really well said. I know. Yeah, that biophilic design has has just been it's been popping up in, in all kinds of other markets as well, and it, and it is so important because of the inherent benefits of that, right? Like, I mean, I, I know even in the healthcare industry, they've done research and found, you know, just even access to to views of the outdoors or or artwork that's inspired by nature has had just measurable um, benefits to to patients in terms of their recovery. And I think even if I'm not mistaken. Uh, in the education sector as well, uh, the student performance improves. Is, is that right? Absolutely. So um, this is Jennifer. We just finished a biophilic study with Terrapin Bright Green and the Salk Institute, and we actually have some original data around that. Uh, student stress levels go down, mm-hmm. test scores go up, uh, absenteeism goes down. I mean, it it is very, very valuable. I would challenge some of my design practitioner partners, uh, reusing existing buildings is something I think we need to consider too. Uh, as an architect, we love to think about what that new structure might look like, but I think we need to really be considering reuse. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, what is it, 75% of our campus buildings are between the ages of 30 and 40 years old, and we just can't rip them all down. We're going to have to figure out how to reuse them and be thoughtful about that. So I think that's something that we need to consider as we're moving forward, too. Yeah, absolutely. And that reminds me of a quote. I don't know who it's attributed to, but, you know, something along the lines of the most sustainable building is the one that already exists. Right. Um, because of all the embodied carbon, the embodied energy um, and, and the materials that, you know, that you divert from a landfill by by tearing yeah. one down. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's such a great point. We just had a project where we decided to keep one of the existing buildings that was on the site instead of rip it down and build new. And it was about a 14,000 square foot building. It wasn't very big, but mm-hmm. we calculated we saved 400 metric tons of carbon emissions by reusing that building instead of building it new. Wow. So I, I really think this is something we need to consider. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, as we're landing the proverbial plane here on this conversation, uh, I wanted to uh, just maybe get some of your parting thoughts um, overall um, about this theme. Um, is there an overarching message that you all would like our listeners to walk away with, um, you know, after listening to this conversation about, um, you know, how a higher educational market can impact uh, climate change uh, efforts? Uh, Martha, why don't I start with you here? Sure. I think um, I'll just start by saying how grateful I am to be working in the higher ed sector because it is visionary and creative, and so many exciting things are happening there right now in the intersection of that uh, market and uh, sustainability. But we're living in an era when we have to balance this very increased conscientiousness and careful attention with urgency. And so that's that's a hard thing to achieve when we're thinking about uh, how our work impacts the climate. And I just want to say one more thing, which kind of ties to what Jennifer was saying, is thinking about this reuse, adaptive reuse, um, embodied carbon, we have a reciprocal relationship with nature. And I've heard it said, you know, think about the plants, the animals, land and water as relatives, not resources. And so if we're thinking about them as relatives and we're going to use them in a building, you know, use less. And when we do, do it conscientiously with gratitude and with an awareness of what it took to get those materials here and, you know, essentially the sacrifice of removing them from where they were. And I think that sort of increased awareness um, doesn't fly with every audience, but if we sort of keep it internally as a touchstone, 
when we're designing and when we're building and when we're advising clients, it helps us just kind of naturally think about how to use less to begin with. I would just jump in too and, and say the same thing. I'm just really proud to be in the higher education sector. Uh, this is a very, very complicated issue. And so I, I appreciate, Robert, that you're bringing it to the forefront with this uh, podcast. You know, we can't bury our heads in the sand. I would say every little thing helps. Every plastic bag you don't use, every building you reuse, every, you know, um, opportunity to use daylight instead of an electric lamp, all of it helps. And so I think we just need to leave with that thought. Sometimes this topic is so complicated. People just give up. Don't give up. Right. It's something we have to we have to fix and we can do it together. All right, Dara, uh, last but not least, uh, any parting thoughts for the for our listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think the thoughts that you shared, Jennifer and Martha, are, are really, really beautiful and important. And I, too, feel um, very grateful and um, sometimes intimidated to be working on projects that, um, you know, they do take a lot of resources. They do take a lot of energy and the decisions that we make have long lasting impacts, you know, especially as you're thinking about university buildings that have 100 years of life plus, you know, um, I, I, my mind keeps coming back to the, the conversations and the decisions that can be made in rooms about these projects. And, you know, I think connecting that to future generations, to students and involving them in the design process can be um, just a really great way to uh, bring them into the conversation. You know, we make, um, you know, we design buildings. Um, they've got all of these um, things sort of integrated into them. And sometimes they're really visible and sometimes they're really not. And so um, it's just kind of an interesting way to think about, like, how does somebody know how impactful a building is? You know, do they just... You know, there's there's information available about these things um, and there's studies done. And and but how does somebody know that a, a building is, um, you know, performs better or just feels better? You know, it kind of comes back to that biophilic design um, and sort of designing with wellness in mind. But I, I do think involving the next generation in the design process and engaging them um, is a really great way to bring them in. To that conversation and to, um, you know, bring them along for the process and getting that sort of, uh, experience or that, that process really, um, uh, accessible to students and to, you know, university community at large. I think that can be a, a way to shine light on what's going on and, um, and, and really just bringing everybody into that, um, decision making process can be really powerful. Yeah, absolutely. And and I totally agree with you, Dara, uh, as far as just educating the next generation, because, you know, as as students begin to understand the impact that the built environment can have on uh, not only, uh, you know, the planet, but also on health and wellness, um, you know, that it might inspire them to pursue a career in, in architecture and design. What a great and insightful, inspiring conversation. Um, thank you all for being here and sharing your viewpoints and experiences with our listeners. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Robert. Yeah, Thanks, Robert. Absolutely. absolutely. Well, for our listeners out there, um, if you haven't gone back to listen to episodes one or two in this sustainability series, uh, please go back and check those out when you have some time. Uh, let your colleagues know about them uh, and the I Hear Design podcast. 
If you would be so kind also to just give us a good rating if you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, thank you for tuning in. And as always, be well, everyone. Thank you.